I had been practicing for about 15 years in the Vipassana lineage and very familiar with the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and mindfulness of breathing and body. And I showed up on this Dzogchen retreat, and within two days I was chanting hundred-syllable mantras for golden-hued deities who had been primordially enlightened beyond space and time. (laughs) And I was sort of trying to figure out, what is going on here? What am I doing? Is this the same religion? Is it the same philosophy at all? And what do I make sense of between these two, these two grounds? It brought up a lot of questions for me. One of the key ones was, as Rinpoche was explaining today, the notion that the ground is the inseparable union of emptiness and cognizance means that awareness is somehow connected with what is unconditioned. This was not a teaching I had heard in 15 years of Theravada. Where did that come from? Was it true or wasn't it? Many well-known Theravadan teachers were saying, absolutely not true. The realization of the unconditioned comes with no consciousness, no cognizance present whatsoever. And if there's a trace of cognizance there, it's not the real thing. What was the connection between the Rigpa practice that Rinpoche was teaching and the mindfulness quality that I had been developing all along, rooted in the four foundations of mindfulness from the Theravada. What was the connection to the deities and the mantras and the mandalas and that whole cosmology that Tibetan Buddhism opened up? These questions really occupied my interest for a long time, and I had to search deeply within my own experience, talk to a lot of different teachers, and read a lot of different books until I felt I had come to a resolution of them in a way that feels comfortable for me. I found many points of uh, overlap and some points of potential conflict that took me a while to sort through. Also, as you'll be uh, finding if you're new to this practice, as Rinpoche unfolds it over the next few days, the uh, practice of Rigpa is a subtle practice, one of the most subtle practices I've come across, and it was hard for me to find my footing in that kind of very spacious territory. So again, it took me a while to feel I had my feet on the non-ground, or the groundless ground uh, that Dzogchen is based upon. And yet, I found these teachings opened up a whole new dimension of my understanding and my practice, and they were very valuable for me. Many other Vipassana practitioners have felt the same thing, and it's out of this uh, shared experience and a love for these teachings that we've invited Rinpoche to come to Spirit Rock. So this is the third time, actually, that he has taught here. And the basic motivation on the part of Spirit Rock as an organization is to be able to share these teachings with the Vipassana community that makes their spiritual home here. Of course, at the same time, Rinpoche has many students of his own in the Bay Area, and we also wanted to open the doors for all of you to come and join us. So we have this rather mixed audience for this week, which is part of what makes it an interesting week. Some people strictly from a Theravadan background, some from a Vajrayana background, some with a mix. So there's a wide range 
And I hope to say something meaningful to everyone in the course of the week, but if I don't, I apologize. My particular interest really is in helping new practitioners, especially from the Vipassana lineage, be able to make a quick and helpful relationship with the Dzogchen teachings. That's the main reason I'm here, and that's the main role that I want to fulfill in these evening talks, to save you some of the struggles that I went through as I was sort of making my wavery way over a number of years into these teachings. I want to do that on both a theoretical level and a practice level. Tonight, because Rinpoche is keeping his talks mostly on the conceptual level at the beginning, I'm also going to be on the conceptual level tonight. A couple of days later, as we get into more of the experiential pointings of the Rigpa practice, my talks will also move more in experiential direction. But what I'd like to talk about tonight is a little bit of the uh, relationship of all the Buddhist practices. When Rinpoche and I were first talking about bringing this retreat to Spirit Rock, we thought, what are we going to call it? And of course, we ended up calling it a Dzogchen retreat, which I think is the most honest advertisement. But at one point, we thought of calling it the Dzogchen view of Vipassana and the Vipassana view of Dzogchen. (laughs) Because I think both traditions have something to offer to one another. But we settled for simplicity, which I think was helpful. In addition to all the questions that were raised in terms of the way the teachings differed, I also felt a lot of overlap as I listened to Rinpoche. And I hope you heard that today. From the Theravadan end of things, there was quite a bit of talk about suffering and ignorance, attachment, clinging, impermanence, and all those staples, the three poisons, karma, which are solidly within the Theravadan lineage. There were also elements in his teaching that were more particularly Mahayana, the emphasis on compassion, bodhicitta, and the emphasis on emptiness, more, more commonly are associated with the Mahayana strain. And then as he started to get into a description of Dzogpa Chenpo with ground, path, and fruition, we start to move really into the realm of the Vajrayana teachings. So as I started listening to Rinpoche those years ago, I realized that between the Four Noble Truths and Dzogpa Chenpo, a few other things had happened in between. So what I'd like to do over these next two nights is talk about what happened in between. And I'm going to title this A Short History of Buddhism in India from Parinirvana to Dzogchen. Basically, what took place between the death of the Buddha, which was around 463 BCE, and the emergence of Dzogchen, which is put at around the 8th century CE in India. Now, a note, a couple of notes on time frames. The common way of talking about historical time in Western cultures is BC and AD, which is based on the life of Christ. Being Buddhists, we don't necessarily want that to be our milestone. So the scholarly way of talking about it is the using the term CE to stand for common era, but it also starts at year zero of the Christian calendar. 
So typically I'll talk about CE as being the centuries and dates that we're familiar with. We're currently in 2006 of the Common Era. And BCE is before the Common Era. So it's just unchristianizing the same calendar that we're currently using. If we were in Thailand right now, we would be in the year 2549 because that is the Buddhist era. So really, it would be great as Buddhists to talk about it in terms of the year 2549, but it would be hard to relate it to all the other history you know, so I'm not going to do that. As we go through what happened in India from the early teachings to the Mahayana and the emergence of the Vajrayana, one of the things that I think is so interesting are all the different questions that emerged as the school split. The splitting of the schools took place not so much by geography, but mostly around philosophical questions. And these are the same sorts of philosophical questions that we encounter when we try to blend the classical teachings of the Buddha with the Vajrayana teachings. So as you listen to different streams within the Buddhist tradition, these are questions that uh, may naturally arise for you to ponder on. And as we explore the unfolding of the history, I think you'll start to see the origin of these discussions and questions. The second thing to say is that I'm going to be presenting the findings, the research of scholars, primarily Western scholars, but also some Asian scholars, who trace the evolution of Buddhism through these different schools in a time sequence. Now, you may hear from different Asian teachers that all these teachings were spoken by the historical Buddha, but to different audiences. The research of Western scholars says otherwise. I don't want to particularly get into an argument about that. It's really up to you to decide what your own view is. But I'll just be presenting the way that Western scholars, for the most part, have outlined it based on their historical research, which is mostly pretty unbiased. The reason I'm staying in India is because Theravada and Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism, share a common uh, foundation, which is Indian Buddhism. When Buddhism migrated uh, further east to China, particularly, and later to Japan and Korea, it morphed completely into Chan and then Zen and took on a very, very different flavor. In some ways, I don't know if you've ever tried, but it's hard to have a philosophical discussion with a Zen master because they'll hit you with a stick or something equivalent. But the common thread between Theravadans and Tibetans is that we're all willing to talk about uh, how conceptual mind can understand these teachings. Whereas in the Zen tradition, they will often cut out and disallow a dialogue about the conventional understanding. This goes back to the nature of Indian Buddhism. India is a very philosophically inclined culture, and that's influenced both the Theravadan school and the Tibetan school. So we, in a way, share a common outlook on the role of the conceptual mind. One of the other things that come up when uh, one addresses a mixed audience and also talks about different traditions is that there may well be differences in views and opinions. And sometimes friendships diverge on the basis of different views and opinions. 
you may have noticed that with others of your friends. So I hope that we uh, find the great spaciousness of mind that holds all the different views and opinions while still maintaining the underlying spirit of loving kindness and friendship. This is from an early Buddhist text from the Sutta Nipata. This is the Buddha speaking. This I do now declare. After investigation, there is nothing among all doctrines that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in philosophical views, without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered inner peace. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> so, with that as a preface, in the, spirit, in the spirit of loving kindness and amity, I want to talk about this unfolding of the history of Buddhism. The early form of Buddhism we could call uh, classical Buddhism, we could call it Pali Buddhism, or we could call it Nikaya Buddhism, because the teachings have come down to us in the form of Pali language texts and collected into gatherings called the Nikayas. So all of these can be used synonymously. Uh, it could also uh, be just be called early Buddhism. So I'll use one of these terms to talk about that early stage. It, this early school of Buddhism is considered to have been alive in an unbroken form and transmitted from teacher to disciple uh, since the death of the Buddha 25, over 2,500 years ago. For about 400 years in, in India, again, according to scholars, this was the only form of Buddhism available. There was nothing but Nikaya Buddhism for about 400 years after the death of the Buddha. And of course, it's also the basis for the Mahayana. The Mahayana arose in groups who were already steeped in the classical teachings. And the Mahayana flourished for hundreds of years, and the Vajrayana arose based on people who were steeped in the Mahayana. So when we listen to Vajrayana teachings, we have to realize they're layered on top of the Mahayana, which is layered on top of the classical teachings. So the classical teachings really are the underpinning for all the later schools. In fact, it's often said, the Dalai Lama has said, that the thing that's, that unites all Buddhists is our agreement on the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So in a way, we can think of this as our common foundation. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way leading to the end of suffering. It's interesting that even when you get into the Mahayana texts that try to refute some of the classical texts, they use the same language. So when you listen to the Heart Sutra, what it goes through is a negating of the five aggregates and dependent origination and the four noble truths, which are the cornerstones of Theravadan teaching. So you can imagine as a practitioner reciting the Heart Sutra every day, you're hearing the basic teachings over and over and over. In many Zen temples, the Heart Sutra is, re is recited before every meal. So you're hearing about the aggregates, the chain of dependent origination, the Four Noble Truths, letting them really sink into your bones as you go through the ups and downs of intensive meditation practice, and then you hear them negated. 
So the mind has to do another philosophical turn to understand that. But all these concepts and teachings are living with one all the time in that setting. So, after the Buddha died, for about a hundred years, the community lived in quite a bit of harmony. But just think realistically, what happens when a charismatic founder dies? If you have looked back into other spiritual scenes, what tends to happen is the followers understand things differently. Disciple A has a different take than disciple B from disciple C, and then they end up going their own ways because they want to carve out their own understanding of things. A lot of this is lost in history, of course, so scholars are still trying to put the pieces together. How much is lost is unanswerable, but it's a huge amount. One thing interesting about the Tibetan tradition is it's a very literate tradition. So once it got established in Tibet, Detailed records were kept of lineages and teachers and written teachings. But when you think about the Theravadan lineage, it's just the opposite. For whatever reason, we are not a very literate tradition. And let me just toss this out to those of you who've had contact with Theravadan Buddhism. I want to see if you can name for me three famous Theravadins who lived after the time of the Buddha and before, let's say, 1900. One, Buddhaghosa. There it ends, right? One literary figure in the whole lineage for 2,500 years. That's pretty astounding. I'll mention a couple of others as we go through. But it's just to notice that the Theravadan lineage has been very practice-oriented and not very philosophically oriented. That's just the way it is. If I asked you for Tibetan figures between those times, you could probably come up with a dozen easily. easily. So, the first hundred years were quite uh, uh, simpatico in India. The followers all got along together. And there was just one school. Then, well, let me back up a little bit. After the death of the Buddha, the first council was called. This was called among all the fully enlightened beings who were alive at the time. There were said to be 499 of them. With the Buddha's attendant from his last 25 years, who was uh, another bhikkhu named Ananda. Ananda had followed the Buddha around for the last 25 years of his life and listened to all his Dharma talks. Anytime he missed a Dharma talk, he asked someone later to repeat to him what had been said, and he had a fantastic memory. So he was brought to this gathering of 499 arhats, but Ananda was only a stream-enterer, first stage of enlightenment. So he was very ashamed and embarrassed and didn't know if he should really join the circle. So he thought, I better try really hard. I've got one night before the council meets. Maybe I can get fully enlightened before morning and join them as an arhat. So he tried really hard all night long, practicing till dawn, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, didn't get there. Gave up just before dawn, laid down for a little rest. I can't make it. I'm just going to relax a little bit. And just before his head hit the pillow, 
<laughs> Full enlightenment. So this says something about the value of relaxation <laughs> in our practice. May it be so for someone here. So Ananda came to the First Council and recited from memory all the suttas that he could remember and then instructed other people in their memorization. These teachings filled in the first Pali Text Society edition filled about 20 volumes um, in Romanized text, all recited by one individual. They weren't written down at the time, I think because the technology of writing was not available. They were passed on just as an oral tradition. Different schools and different monasteries and nunneries were charged with reciting and memorizing different portions of this entire 20-volume set. And in this way, the oral tradition was handed down actually for about 400 years. So in the first hundred years, everything was uh, on the same page. Everybody was still practicing together. But in the western part of India, I'd say probably around what we now know as Delhi, rumors started to arrive about some uh, rebellious monks that were on the east coast, maybe around Calcutta. It's all happening in the Ganges Valley. And these monks were doing sort of scandalous things they were starting to handle gold and silver, which was outlawed in the code of discipline called the Vinaya that was also recited after the Buddha's death. Monks were not allowed to touch money. So these monks said, oh, it's okay to use gold and silver. And this upset the others on the western side. The other thing was that these monks started to doubt the authority of the discourses of the Buddha as they were collected. I said, I don't think that's the whole, the whole truth. I said, we trust our own experience also. So we're not just going to rely on the authority of those texts, even if they were the word of the Buddha. So this caused a split between the Westerners who held to the authority of the suttas, the original discourses, and this new group on the East. So a second council was called a hundred years after the Buddha's death to try to see if they could work it out, but they couldn't. So the first split happened at that point. The group who split off were called the Mahasangikas, which just means great assembly. And so there must have been quite a few of them on the East Coast, the fringe group, you might say. And the group who stayed faithful to the established form of the teachings, called themselves the Staviras, which simply means elders. In Pali, Stavira is translated as Theravadan. So this is really probably the origin of the school of Theravada as it's continued to this day. So these kinds of questions come up today. What's the true source of spiritual authority? Is it our own personal experience? Is it a revered text that has come down from a great teacher? Is it the word of your own particular teacher? When is it safe to uh, argue about that? What can get you kicked out of a community? One very orthodox uh, Theravadan practitioner that I was telling about uh, the value of the Dzogchen teachings said to me, Oh, but that's corrupting the true teachings. 
He said that will lead to the decline of the true Dhamma in time. So divisions happen on the basis of views like that. The next phase in the evolution of Buddhism was the development of what's called the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is considered the third basket in the Theravadan canon, the Pali canon, the first of the discourses of the Buddha. The second is the monks and nuns' code of discipline, the Vinaya. The third basket is the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is a very analytical approach which is designed to systematize all the lists that the Buddha taught through. The list of the five hindrances and the five aggregates and the six sense bases and the four noble truths, all those lists that you've heard about, to collect them together in one place and make a coherent philosophical system out of them. It's interesting that this happened because it probably didn't happen during the Buddha's time. The Buddha taught skillful means for the sole purpose of people freeing themselves. After his death, then the philosophical questions came in. Well, how can we complete this as a complete system? How can we demonstrate it to outsiders so as to convince them of the coherence and consistency of our school of thought? The Abhidhamma apparently started to form not long after the Buddha's death. There were certainly some traces of it by about a hundred years later. But the form that we have it in today, which is another seven volumes, didn't happen, scholars say, until about 300 years after the Buddha's death. Now, if you ask an Orthodox Theravadan for the origin of the Abhidhamma, he'll tell you it was taught by the Buddha. And they have an elaborate story, actually, that goes with it. They say it's too, it's too long to have been taught in one setting, in a human form, but it had to be taught in one sitting. So what happened was, during one rains retreat, you know, the Buddha planted himself during every rainy season so the monks and nuns wouldn't trample the crops. They said during one rainy season, the Buddha went up into Susita heaven and delivered the Abhidhamma over three months to his mother, who was living in Tusita heaven, because in the heaven realm, one could sit for three months without moving. Do you, be- do you believe it? Mm, maybe not. And then they said, he transmitted his psychic body back to earth over the same rains retreat and delivered the Abhidhamma teachings to Sariputta in his rains retreat. So, that is how... Orthodox Theravadins explain the origin of the Abhidhamma as coming from the mouth of the Buddha. Scholars, however, say that that's not true. They say that the Abhidhamma in its current form was only assembled 300 years later, and obviously they have ways to track the origin to have some confidence in that. We'll see this theme come in again later, because many later teachings, according to scholars, were developed later, authored later by anonymous people, but put into the mouths of the Buddha, the mouth of the Buddha, to give them more credibility. We'll come back to that. So the Abhidhamma formed about 300 years after the death of the Buddha. Then another interesting uh, inflection point, this is another important school, came around the year... uh, 250 BCE. This is about 200 years after the Buddha died. At this time, 
a king named Asoka had come to the throne in northern India. Asoka is one of the most famous kings in Indian history and certainly in Buddhist history. He was a very uh, warlike, uh, violent conqueror early on, had conquered all the neighboring uh, chiefdoms and kingdoms and made a, a great territory that he called his own. And it said that after one battle, he was looking down at the carnage of all the dead soldiers from both his army and the opposing army and was stricken with a sense of guilt that his own ambition had caused all this massive death to have taken place. In the middle of watching that remnants of the battlefield, he saw a Buddhist monk walk slowly through the bodies. And the Buddhist monk had such composure and radiance that something shifted in Asoka. And he said, how is it that this monk who has nothing is more equanimous and more radiant than I who have everything material? And it said that at that moment, his heart turned. He soon thereafter converted to Buddhism and changed his kingdom completely. He renounced war. He sent messages to all the neighboring kingdoms. His days of conquering were done. He wanted to live in peace and harmony. He distributed food and wealth liberally around his kingdom so that the people felt secure and confident. This is actually one of the teachings, one of the few teachings of the Buddha on how an effective government should be organized. He said that poverty should not exist in a dharmic environment. And he began to outlaw uh, many different kinds of animal sacrifices which were continuing under the Vedic uh, rules that uh, the Brahmins lived under. So a real sense of peacefulness came. He moreover became a great patron of the, of the Dharma and supported many monasteries and nunneries. So the Dharma came to a lot of flourishing under Asoka's government. So Asoka himself called the Third Council around 250 BCE, I think as a way to bring the Sangha together. But the result of that was another split. And this is kind of an important school that came out of this split. They're called the Sarvastivadins. The Sarvastivadins were puzzled by a philosophical question that remained unanswered by the Buddha, which Rinpoche uh, sort of alluded to earlier today. Where do karmic effects live? Where do they live? When you do an action that comes from a motivation, whether wholesome or unwholesome, it's said that that has a karmic impact that stretches into the future. How is that effect carried forward? Because the action, when it's done, is done. Whatever mind state was there in the doing of the action, that's impermanent and it goes. Your body moves forward and changes. The other person moves forward and changes. How does karma transmit itself forward? So the Sarvastivadins made the first recorded attempt to answer this question. What they, the way they decided to answer it, it seems a little risky to me. They said, okay, we're going to decide that past, present, and future all really exist now. They've never, the past has never really gone away and the future is already here. This is a very radical kind of philosophical stance to take, but this was their way of answering that question. So they said those past actions actually still live on, and that's how the past is able to reach in and touch the present. 
One of the other innovations from the Sarvastivadins was the emphasis on the paramis. The paramis became a great force in the Mahayana. The Sarvastivadins, who were still in the field of classical Buddhism, were the first to bring them forth and really emphasize them. They're hardly mentioned at all as a list in the Pali Canon. I mean, they appear maybe once, and it's not in the mouth of the Buddha. It's in another volume. But the Mahayana brought the six paramis uh, really to the forefront, and of course Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life really crystallized a whole series of teaching around the paramis as a way to enlightenment. The Sarvastivadins were incredibly influential uh, for the following reason. They tended to migrate to the north and west of India. Their, their text, their canon was all in Sanskrit, and they had their own Abhidharma in Sanskrit also. Then, as Buddhism spread, and by the way, almost all of Asia was Buddhist at one point or another. It's incredible to look back at the reach of the Buddhist teachings, which started in India soon spread to Pakistan. Pakistan is said to have been the home of Padmasambhava, who took the Dzogchen teachings into Tibet. It spread into Afghanistan, and you probably remember that it was only a few years ago that the Taliban knocked down those huge standing Buddhas that had been there for thousands of years in Afghanistan. So from Afghanistan, Pakistan, of course it's alive today in Nepal, It spread into uh, Tibet and China via the Silk Route. The Silk Route went through Kashmir and then up over the north of Nepal into Tibet, and that's when it traveled into China, later Japan and Korea, and transformed into Chan and Zen. And also, of course, it spread from India to Sri Lanka and to Southeast Asia and down through Indonesia. So essentially all of Asia at certain times was mostly Buddhist. It's amazing to see, and today it's mostly dying. Buddhism is mostly on the decline in Asia. Either communism has gotten it, or what communism hasn't gotten, capitalism is getting. So it's, it's, it's sad from that perspective. So we all need to practice hard and hope that it stays alive here. So... The Sarvastivadins planted themselves in the northwest and west of India, and therefore it was their teachings that migrated on the Silk Route into Tibet and later China. So it was actually the Sarvastivadin Sanskrit canon that ended up in Tibet, not the Pali canon. Tibet generally does not have the Pali canon. Uh, It's only survived through being kept alive in Sri Lanka. We'll get to that later. So what Tibetans know about the early schools, they draw from the Sarvastivadin canon, which made it in eventually into translated Tibetan form. And particularly, they tend to associate the Theravadin schools, which now they call Hinayana, they tend to associate with the Abhidharma. So a lot of the Tibetans' understanding of what Theravadin practice is about is based on their reading of a Sanskrit Abhidharma from about 2,000 years ago. And there doesn't seem to have been a lot of contact since then. So I often find that the 
things that Tibetan teachers say about Theravadins doesn't mesh with my experience of what's actually going on in our practice here or in our practice in Asia where we learned it. So I always take it with a little bit of grain of salt and you might want to also. The entire canon uh, was not preserved in the long run and I don't know whether it fell apart first in India or fell apart on the Silk Route on the way to India but the Sarvastivadin canon is only preserved in part. And the only canon that survived in its entirety is the uh, Pali canon, which again went down to Sri Lanka first. (coughs) Then a later split that was kind of interesting, the Sarvastivadins were big on the Abhidharma. They had modified it from the Pali one, so it's a little different, but a similar spirit. Another group split off from the Sarvastivadins who are called the Sautrantikas. The Sautrantika said, you're putting way too much emphasis on the Abhidhamma and this analytical definition of how moments of experience arise one after another. You're giving it far too much weight and in giving the Abhidhamma too much weight, you're losing the spirit of the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha's teachings have a, you know, a magnificent, uplifting, expansive, uh, very broad view of spiritual life. And the Abhidhamma, because it's so detailed and so systematized, to me, takes the heart out of the Buddha's teachings. It's a little too dry. And considered as a complete system, it doesn't have that juice that the original teachings had. So the Sautrantika said, that's not the essence of the Dharma. You've lost something of the heart of the Dharma. You're relying too much on the technicalities. We're going to go back and ground ourselves in the original teachings of the suttas, or sutras in Sanskrit. So this was another split. The Sautrantika split off from the Sarvastivadins. And the date of this isn't quite clear, but it happened sometime by the 2nd century of the Common Era, 2nd century CE. This is another kind of dispute that is felt today in the Buddhist world between groups that tend to rely on the Abhidhamma as the ultimate authority and those who rely on the classical teachings of the Buddha as a final authority. And for example, when I went to Burma to practice about a year and a half ago, I met one Abhidhamma teacher who told me, oh, well, in Burma we regard the Vinaya as the teaching on Sila. We regard the Suttapitaka as the teaching on Samadhi, or you could say Samatha. And we regard the Abhidhamma as the teaching on Panya, or wisdom. So in their view, the Abhidhamma was the highest of the three books. Of course, we tend to regard the suttas as the source for samadhi and panya, both. And I trust in the spirit of the suttas more than I do the spirit of the Abhidhamma. So the next interesting development was King Asoka, in his love of the Dharma, sent missionaries out in many different directions. Most of them didn't really eventually take root. They may have made a a temporary inroad, but in the long run they disappeared from the face of Indian Buddhism. But one missionary had a profound effect that lasts to the current day, and that was King Asoka's son, whose name was Mahinda. He sent Mahinda to the island of Sri Lanka, Mahinda there established a great monastery. It was there about 150 years later 
that the texts, all the suttas and the Vinaya and the Abhidhamma were first written down. Mahinda went to Sri Lanka about 240 BCE and around another 150 years later, the texts were first written down. They were written down on, on leaves. Apparently that was the best writing technology that was available at the time. The amazing thing is that Buddhism was more or less wiped off the face of India. I'll talk about this more tomorrow night, but due to Muslim invasions from the West, Buddhism in India was almost completely obliterated and the texts were destroyed. But the invasion did not reach Sri Lanka and the Pali texts that were written down 400 years after the death of the Buddha have survived to the present day. It's quite incredible when you think about it. The 20-some volumes of words that were spoken 2,500 years ago have come down in a somewhat authentic form. I don't know how authentic, but somewhat authentic because they still liberate people and they're so consistent. In this unbroken and relatively uncorrupted way. And it's just mind-boggling to think of the generations of practitioners and scribes and scholars who have done the work to make that available to us today. And now most of that canon is available in pretty well-translated English, pretty readable English today. So this is the only source for an entire canon from any of the schools of early Buddhism, the Pali texts that were taken to Sri Lanka. Why was it written down in Pali? Scholars are not quite sure. They think either Pali is very close to the language that the Buddha spoke, which was probably Magadan, but they can't be 100% sure of that, or one scholar suggested that Pali was the language that Mahinda's mother spoke, and that's why he wrote it down in Pali. But one or another, that's what the text came down in. It's a, it's a near neighbor of Sanskrit, but it's not as elegant as Sanskrit. People who know Sanskrit and then go learn Pali say it's like speaking Sanskrit with marbles in your mouth. So the really elegant uh, language of the Buddhist text was Sanskrit. And some of that has come down, but not very much of it. So we're up to about 100 BCE. And this is just around the time when the Mahayana starts to arise in India. The origins of the Mahayana are not clear at all. Some scholars say that it originated with groups of lay people. Some scholars say that it originated in the south of India. But the real origins of it are unclear from a scholarly point of view. One thing that does seem apparent is that it was something of a backlash to the Abhidhamma, to the overly structured, systematic, dry, detailed explanations of the Abhidhamma. And the Mahayana sought to restore the mystic side and the inspiration to Buddhism. So I think that's where we'll stop tonight, the advent of the Mahayana. Tomorrow we'll talk about the growth of the Mahayana, the arising of the Vajrayana.